Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Jim Nelson, uh, one of the elders here at Grace, part of the teaching team. And so um, I'm excited to be opening the word with you today. Um, this, this week, um, the preparation for this week has really been significant for me. I feel like I have learned some things about faith that I really didn't quite grasp before. And so I'm really um, excited to share this with you. Um, <clears throat> and we are in the Gospel of Luke, as you know. We've been tracking along, and we are, uh, we're gonna start on chapter seven today. Um, we're, we're skipping a section of chapter six, which is basically Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason is that Mark Fesmeyer just taught on that recently. So we're gonna, we're gonna, he did such a great job. We're just gonna move forward to Luke chapter seven. And we're gonna be uh, focusing on the event where Jesus encountered a centurion with great faith. Um, and uh, actually the plan was to talk about the centurion and then also the next episode, which is Jesus's encounter with a, a widow that had just lost her son. And he raised that young man from the dead. You can read that yourself in verses 10 through 17. But it, this episode with the centurion is so significant that I think we really need to not only understand it, but figure out how to apply it. I want to apply this to my own life. So um, the centurion, uh, just to give you a little bit of background before we go to the text, um, the centurion rank in the Roman army was a significant one. It's like a general. There were multiple levels of centurions. The most basic level was um, you're over about 80 soldiers. So that's the most basic level. But they had a lot of other higher levels, and it seems like the centurion in this story was at a little bit higher level. Also, this centurion was probably not a Roman because of where he was located. The Romans did not have a permanent outpost in Galilee until much later. So this centurion was probably a part of the army of Herod, Herod Antipas. He's the guy, remember, uh, when, when Jesus was, um, but just before the crucifixion, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. That's the Herod that we're talking about. And so he had to have an army. And so these uh, tetrarchs that Rome would appoint, they would have an army that had similar rank and training to the Roman army. So, so this centurion uh, was, was probably a part of Herod Antipas's uh, army. He was a professional soldier and he was a person of authority within, within the empire structure. So those are important things to, to remember. But here's the thing, he was a rare person. He was a person of great faith. And I don't know about you, but I feel so keenly my need as a believer to increase my faith, don't you? You know, you look around this world and you see fear, and you see confusion, and you see evil, and it seems like it's kind of growing. What are we going to do as the church of Jesus Christ? We need to be people of great faith. And so what an honor to be able to, to study and look at this soldier who was such a rare person. So let me pray for us as we open the word together. Lord, Lord Jesus, 
We love you so much. We want to be people of faith. We want to please you like this centurion did. Help us, Lord, to learn from this text, to learn from this passage. Your Holy Spirit is the only one who can really teach us. So I pray that he would just take over and take this whole session. And Lord, do what you will with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to begin by reading through these nine verses. This is the story of this encounter. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. So remember, Capernaum was sort of the home base of Jesus' ministry. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just Say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Where do you find this in the Gospels, where Jesus is marveling at somebody's faith? What you find is the opposite. He continually, Jesus continually ran into unbelief everywhere he looked. The religious leaders, they were supposed to be the ones that were expert in the Old Testament. They were supposed to be the ones that recognized him. Almost uniform unbelief from them, a few exceptions, but almost uniform unbelief. His hometown, they knew him pretty well. Brian talked about this a few weeks ago. His hometown, they tried to kill him. In Mark 6.6, 6, it says that Jesus could perform no miracles in his own hometown because of their unbelief. And that Jesus wondered at that. He was amazed at the, un, at the level of unbelief in Nazareth. What about Capernaum, his home base of ministry? Well, Capernaum wasn't any better because in Matthew 11.23, Jesus denounces Capernaum. He says, you know what? If the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom, which was a very evil city, if Sodom would still be here to this day. So Capernaum was an atmosphere of unbelief. Ah, but what about the disciples? Certainly the, the disciples were a bright spot. Wrong. How many times did Jesus say, oh, you of little faith? five or six times in the book of Matthew alone. And 
You know, that word, that, that when he says, oh, you have little faith, uh, some commentators have pointed out that that is actually a coined word. He's calling them little faiths because it's the word, the Greek word for little and the Greek word for faith put together, and it's a coined word. And you know, it reminded me of, of my dad. He was, my dad was always coining words. And so I had two brothers, and his favorite expression for us was he called us lard buckets. <laughs> he grew up on a farm, and you can imagine moving a bucket full of lard. It's heavy, it's uncooperative, it sloshes on your shoes, it makes a mess. And so whenever we're not doing what we're supposed to do, whenever we're goofing off, whenever we're not paying attention, come on, you lard buckets. So Jesus was calling them little face. Kind of a similar idea. And then we come across a Roman soldier that Jesus marveled at. We have got to pay attention to this, folks. If I want to grow my faith, I need to learn from people that are stronger in faith than me. And here's someone that we can learn from. So there's, there's many things that we could talk about about the centurion, but I've tried to boil it down to three things about him that we can focus on that are all clearly spelled out in the passage. That all have to do, they're all sort of building blocks and components of his faith. First of all, he was a person of sterling character. We'll see that. Second of all, he was a person of action. He acted. Third, and maybe the most important and the most difficult for us to understand the centurion understood authority. So these are some of the reasons, some of the, the, the reasons that he was capable of great faith. And so if we can pay attention to these things and we can try to cultivate them in our lives, then hopefully our faith will grow as well. So Let's talk about his character. What do we see? It's amazing how much about this man's character is packed in just nine verses. First of all, he was compassionate. He cared about his servant. The account in Matthew says that his servant was being fearfully tormented by paralysis. He cared about him. Second of all, the Jewish elders said he loves the Jewish people. So he's capable of compassion. That's an element of his, of his character. He was a humble person. He asked the Jewish elders for help. Now remember, this is a person that has a high rank in the ruling authority of the area. Rome was king. This guy was a centurion, but he's asking for help from the Jewish elders. Can you please help me? He said to Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to come under the roof of my house. Can you imagine an official with that kind of power telling an itinerant rabbi teacher that I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof? This is genuine humility. And the thing that I really like about this guy is when, it, when he started talking about authority, you know what he said first? 
Well, he didn't say, oh yeah, I know about authority. I got all these people under me. He didn't say that. He said, I know about authority because I am a man under authority. What a beautiful thing. And how important for the church of Jesus Christ that any of us who have the privilege of having a leadership position, the first thing that we think of is, I am a man under authority, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime that we have a leadership position, we are under authority. That's number one. He was generous. He built them a synagogue. That's not inexpensive. You know, we've got to build a building and we're all, you know, going to pitch together on that. So he built them a synagogue. He was respectful and reverent. He called Jesus Lord, a very respectful title. And he realized, I think, that if Jesus had come into his house, Jesus would have been ceremonially unclean because he was a Gentile. And the rule was that if a Jewish person went into the home of a Gentile, they were unclean and there's a seven-day process. So he was considerate. He said, no, 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 don't come to my house. It's okay. The final thing about his character was that he had friends. He sent friends to Jesus. He was capable of friendship, people that liked him, that he was associated with, that helped him. So what does character have to do with faith? Character isn't faith, but I think we can, we can conceive of character maybe as the soil of faith, right? The soil isn't the same as the plants that come out of it, but the soil is so important. Think about a person that is self-reliant, that is arrogant, that does not have friends, that doesn't have relationships with other people, that doesn't have any trust in other people. You take a person like that, is it possible for that person to be a person of faith in God, in his relationship with God? I don't think so. I think we have to have this soil of compassion, relationship, generosity, respect, humility, all these things that the, that the centurion uh, showed. And character isn't something that I can say, hey, you know what? I've got some character problems. By Tuesday morning, I'm going to have all this corrected. It is a lifelong process, you know? I keep thinking that in my own life, okay, I, we got some of the major stuff overhauled. And then I'm going back to the Lord and saying, oh, Lord, this is awful. Will you please help me with this character flaw? Please, I need help here. Character is a lifelong process. But this was a person of sterling character and wonderful soil for faith. <clears throat> he was a person of action. We see that in the passage. He didn't just have compassion for his servant. He did something about it. He acted. It says that he loved the Jewish people. That's wonderful. That's nice. And he built them a synagogue. I love that. When Jesus was coming to his house and he was concerned that he didn't want he didn't feel worthy for Jesus to come. He sent his friends. He acted. So he was a person, a person of action. And you know, this is a part, really, of, of being a soldier, isn't it? 
especially a soldier that has battle experience, which was common in that day. You know, I love the movie um, Saving Private Ryan. Amazing movie. And Tom Hanks' character was a, a person of action, Captain Miller. He made decisions like this on the battlefield. He had to decide what to do and do it. And you know, there's an interesting scene toward the end of the movie when he's torn because he doesn't know whether to save Private Ryan and take him away from danger or stay and fight for that bridge. And so for the first time, he's, he's not sure what to do. And so the sergeant comes up to him and says, like any good soldier, what are your orders? What are we doing? And Captain Miller says, Sergeant, we've crossed some strange boundary here. The world has taken a turn for the surreal. In other words, he can't believe the situation he's in. He doesn't know what to do. And the sergeant's response, clearly, that's true. But the question still stands. What are your orders? This is the life of a soldier. And so this soldier, action was embedded into the principles of his life. And you know, faith doesn't really come alive apart from action. The book of James does a really good job of describing that. There's something about acting on our faith that it's almost like a catalyst that brings it to life. Faith is a little bit theoretical until we act upon it, and then it becomes real. This is Jesus' last statement in the previous chapter of Luke from the Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at this. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. And then he goes on to talk about the house built in the rock. Comes to me, that's step one. Hears my words, that's step two. But that doesn't do it. It's acting upon the words of Jesus that make that faith come alive. And so what that means is that we have to be thinking about steps of faith in our personal lives that God is calling us to do. We need to be alert to that. And guess what? We as a body are in the middle of a step of faith. What are we doing in a middle school? We had a nice building. What are we, doesn't it feel a little bit awkward here? Doesn't it feel a little bit abnormal? Yes, and that's what happens with the step of faith. It isn't always comfortable. It isn't always easy. You know, the fact that you step out in faith doesn't mean that everything's gonna fall in line. We may have some struggles. We may have some challenges in this step of faith that we're taking. But you know what? We believe that this is where the Holy Spirit has led us. We are convinced that this is the path that God has for us. And so if you know that it's God's path, he's gonna carry you through any of those challenges. And that's where we are. He is going to carry this body through any challenge that is in front of us because we wanna be on his path. That's where we are. We wanna be cooperating with the Holy Spirit and led by him. 
The third thing about the centurion, and maybe the most important and difficult to understand, is that he understood authority. He knew how authority worked. He knew he was under authority. And remember, in the Roman army, or if he was in the auxiliary army, following orders was not an optional thing. Like, hey, here's your order, but you know if things get a little dicey, go ahead and just, you know, play it by ear. You know, if the battle gets a little bit too intense, you can go ahead and run anytime you want to. That's not the way soldiering works. You are under authority and you follow orders all the way through. He knew that. He understood that. But the, the rare thing about this centurion was he somehow applied this understanding of authority to divine authority. His faith didn't just encompass Jesus. His faith encompassed the authority that Jesus has. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is where we fail. This is where we fall down. This is where we stumble. Our faith in God doesn't extend all the way through to his authority in my everyday life, in my real life. Not just in theory, but in my real everyday life. So to make this practical, I raise the question, okay, how can I tell in my life, how can I tell when I am failing to believe in God's authority all the way through my life? I think he's given us a gauge. You know, I've got a tractor, and I really like this tractor. It's a 1956 Ford. It's slightly younger than me. That's really, that's really horrible to admit that, but I have to tell you that. And it's got a temperature gauge. Very simple. There's a green part, and there's a red part. Well, <clears throat> it's not supposed to go in the red. So a few years ago, I'm out, you know, cutting the fields, and I'm seeing some things that I didn't want to see. I'm seeing the temperature gauge slowly creeping up. I'm seeing white smoke coming out of the exhaust pipe. I'm seeing a loss of power, and I knew that oh, those things mean that the engine has to be rebuilt, but I didn't want to face that. And so I played this little mental game with myself, this little rationalization game, and it's called, It's Still in the Green. <laughs> and I'd be going along, and it's inching up, and it's a millimeter from the red, and I'm like, it's still in the green. Until one day, I stopped the tractor, and I'm like, what's that sound? Man, that's a weird sound. It sounds like somebody's making tea. And something's boiling. So, ah, uh, it's got to be the radiator. Okay. So I'm listening to the radiator. No. I open the gas tank. 
The gasoline is boiling. The gas tank sits on top of the engine and it was boiling like a pot of tea. And I jumped about three feet in the air. What had to happen was I had to face the truth of what the temperature gauge had been telling me all along. And so I believe that we have a gauge in our lives that we don't want to face. We don't want to know what it's telling us. That temperature gauge is fear. Fear in our lives is a gauge that reveals the truth about what authority we're trusting in. You know, 1 John 4, 18 says, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. In the other part of 1 John, he says God is love. So if I have God in my life, I have perfect love, there's no fear. That isn't the way it works for us. Why not? Well, fear is a signal. It's a gauge that says that even though I believe in God, even though I believe in Jesus, that I have shifted my trust to other authority structures in this world, away from God. In other words, I believe in God, but not his authority. Well, we don't have Caesar as an authority structure. At least I don't think so. He's, he's gone, isn't he? I think he's been gone a while. Um, and we live in a democracy. What authority structures do we have that we rely on? Well, just to name a few, money is the ultimate security. You got money, brother, you're set. You're good. Science and medicine, they are the city on the hill. Our primary hope, everything can be solved by science. You know, our ultimate safety is really in political power. We've got to hold on to that with all we've got. And what about personal safety? You know what? If I take enough precautions, I can protect myself in any situation. No. And I'm not saying that we abandon these other authority structures. The cool thing about the centurion was that he had a position of power in the empire, but he didn't he, he didn't believe in that authority structure as ultimate. He believed in God as the ultimate authority and power structure. And he didn't turn to Caesar to heal his servant. He turned to Jesus. So I'm not saying that we abandon these things. Oh, okay, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to. No, but we put them in their proper place. They are a distant second to the power and authority of God in our everyday lives. Whenever we make those authority structures primary, in other words, I'm trusting in that first, fear is going to come in. That's the gauge. So this week, 
a song came into my mind. Maybe some of you guys remember this song. It's an old school praise song. Be Magnified by Don Moen. You remember that one? Be magnified, O Lord. You are highly exalted. There's nothing you can't do. And I've always thought of that as just a praise song because it kind of is. But it came into my mind. I looked up the lyrics and I realized, wait a minute. This song has always been really powerful to me. The reason that it's powerful is that it is not primarily a praise song. Secondarily, yes. This is primarily a song of confession and renunciation of false beliefs, of putting our faith in the wrong authority structure. I have made you too small in my eyes. Oh, Lord, forgive me. And, and I've believed in a lie that you were unable to help me. Isn't that what happens? We're believers, but we don't believe that God is going to be able to help us. And so this is why the song is so powerful that the first thing about it is there is a, there is a confession that I've believed in a lie. So what I've done is I've kind of taken some of the principles from this song to, to help us deal. I think we need to deal with our fears. We got to deal with them. And you may say, yeah, but it's still in the green. And the gasoline is boiling. You know, and the fears add up, don't they? So the first thing that I think we need to do is to name and acknowledge what the fear is. What is it? What are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? Financial ruin? Personal safety? Conflict and war? What, what am I afraid of? I think we need to go to God and say, Lord, this is what I'm afraid of right here. This is what it is. Number two, acknowledge the lie about God that is embedded in that fear, that's hidden behind the fear. Do you know there's a lie about God's character in every fear that we accept in our lives? If you accept a fear as a believer, you have accepted a lie about the character of God. Huh. You think God can provide for you? You gotta take care of that yourself, buddy. You think God can protect you? Are you kidding me? Acknowledge the lie. And I think we need to confess that to God. We need to say, I'm sorry. You know, when we allow lies in our lives, I think it makes us vulnerable to this other deception. I think it makes us vulnerable to other things that the enemy wants to put in there that are not true. Three, use scripture to renounce the lie and state the truth. This is what Jesus did during the temptation. Brian talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus' response to Satan was what? 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is a, that is a renunciation of a lie and the stating of a truth. And if you hope to break the chains of fear in your life and you're going to try to do it without scripture, good luck. It's not going to happen. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God will cut these chains and it's not like a one and done, okay? We have to keep using the word of God. We have to keep applying the word of God. Sometimes we don't even know what the word of God says about our fear. We've got to go look that up. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's pretty big. And then, four, let faith arise through praise. Be magnified. That's why that song's so powerful. And, and I want to I focus on that because, you know, what does this have to do with dealing with our fears? What does this have to do with faith? Well, Dallas Willard has correctly pointed out that faith isn't something we can actually try to increase. If I'm sitting there saying, you know, I really want to increase my faith, I really want to believe God for this, forget it. It's, it's over. You, faith is, is not something you can talk yourself into. If you're trying to convince yourself to believe something, all that tells you is you don't believe it. Faith arises naturally by the Spirit. And I think, and this is going to surprise you, do you know, uh, and this is just my thoughts this week, I think that we, everybody in this room is a person of great faith. All of us. 100%. Because I think that you have to have great faith to live as a human being in this world. Let me give you a simple example. Almost everybody in here, many of us have taken an airplane flight somewhere. Do you realize the great faith that is required to take an airplane? Are you kidding me? The manufacturer, the mechanic, the flight engineer, the pilot, the air traffic controllers, the laws of physics. You know, we never think hey, you know what, maybe when I get up in the air, the laws of physics are going to change. We don't even think of getting on an airplane as an act of faith, but it is. And we have great faith. And the reason we have great faith is that it is in human science and technology. It is in human management and safety protocols. And that's what I'm saying. We find that easy to be people of great faith when it comes to stuff like that. And we make that primary, and we put our faith in airplanes instead of in the living God, and then we become filled with fear, and we don't know why, and the gauge is going up, and we're saying, it's still in the green, though. I'm still a believer. It's still in the green. We need to deal with that. You know, Sally and I had a blast a couple weeks ago. It was my granddaughter Piper's ninth birthday, 
and we took her out to the movies and we saw The Wizard of Oz on the big screen. I'd never seen it on the big screen before. I love that story. I love that movie. It's so charming. And you know that the story of The Wizard of Oz is a quest, right? There's four characters, four main characters, and each of them desperately wants something. And they are willing to expose themselves to risk to get that. Dorothy wants to go home. The scarecrow wants a brain and so forth. And the genius of The Wizard of Oz, the genius of that story is that in the end, every single one of them already had what they were seeking. They just didn't recognize it. They didn't know it. They didn't know how to apply it. The scarecrow was the smartest guy in the room long before the wizard gave him that thing, whatever he gave him, diploma. He just didn't recognize it. And I'm saying that that's kind of what faith is. We have it. But I think that what happens is that we allow fear and lies and placing our trust in false authority structures to interfere with the natural faith that we are capable of having. So basically, faith can arise within us if we deal with our fears, if we deal with the things that we're trusting in that are false. I'd like for us to, to do this today, if that's okay with you guys. I'd like for us, because you know, it's easy to hear stuff like this. Yeah, yeah, you know, wow, okay. But there's no time like the present to deal with our issues and our fears. And so what I wanna do is just sort of lead us in prayer through this and give each of us an opportunity to name those fears, to let the Holy Spirit show us the lies that are embedded in those fears and to use scripture to renounce those lies. And then through praise to let faith arise. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just gonna lead us in prayer and you can pray along with me and uh, just let the Holy Spirit show you what he wants to show you during this time. So, so let, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this centurion. Thank you for this opportunity to, to study a person of great faith. And Lord, I, I, we just come before you and I ask the Holy Spirit to work in each of us to show us What's my fear? What am I afraid of? What are the fears that are troubling me, that are interfering with my life? So, so 
<clears throat> if the Lord is showing you that, just acknowledge that to him and say, Lord, I, I have this fear. I have this terrible fear of personal safety or financial provision or whatever it is. Lord, I acknowledge that. So just acknowledge that to him. He already knows it, but acknowledging it releases it from you. It names it. <clears throat> and then, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would show us the lie about you that is hidden and embedded in that fear. So let the Lord show you that. What is the lie about him that he can't provide? That he won't provide? That he doesn't really love you? That he isn't really paying attention to you? That he's busy with other things? That he doesn't know how you really feel? What is the lie hidden behind that fear? Let the Holy Spirit show you that and then acknowledge that to God and say, God, I'm so sorry. I have believed a lie about you that is wrong, that is unworthy of you. And then third, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring scripture to mind. And, and for those of you, if a scripture doesn't come to mind, please, um, take the time to find scripture in this area of fear because it's going to be continuing. It's going to be something you have to deal with. So we're just asking the Holy Spirit to bring scripture to mind and use that scripture as your basis for renouncing the lie and stating the truth. And you may need to do this over and over and over again. So Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Are you not more valuable than many sparrows? Let those words sink in, those words of truth. The scripture will break that bond in you. The scripture will break that lie. It will cut that lie. It's the only thing that's powerful enough to do that. And so we have to be armed with the word of God. So Lord, I just pray that you'd bring these scriptures to mind and allow us to cut the ties of these fears. Root them out, Lord, Lord. root them out, Holy Spirit. And then finally, Lord Jesus, let faith arise as we wait upon you. Let faith arise through our praise, that you really are good, that you really are trustworthy, that you really know what's going on, that you have not forgotten about us, you have not abandoned us, that we are precious in your sight. We are the apple of your eye as your children. Lord, as we praise you for the truth about who you are, those chains of fear just fall away and faith arises within us, Lord. Let, let faith arise within this body. We need to be a people of faith and we don't know how to do that. We can't do that ourselves. Let faith arise within us, Lord. And as the song 
so beautifully says, be magnified, O Lord. You are highly exalted and there's nothing you can't do. Lord, our eyes are on you. Be magnified. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.